Should I start? Sure. Hi, I'm Kim Duke, and I'm married to an addict alcoholic. <clears throat> Hi, Kim. My name's Chris, and I am an addict alcoholic. Hi, Chris. Yours sounds lower. Well. Or am I just imagining that? No, it does sound lower. The space is looking a little bare. Obviously, we're still working on the, the moving process, selling the home, all that fun stuff. Very stress-inducing. Very stress-inducing. Almost causes relapses. Let's just say that. And when I say relapses, I mean my own relapses. Yeah. And it's not really a relapse. It's just causing me to want to drink. Yeah. Really bad, but I haven't. I got anxiety meds, so that's been helping. Yeah, I'm lucky it hasn't been affecting me the, the same way, I suppose. I thank God for that because, yeah. Yeah. Does I, that help me being calm and not like yeah. making things But I wish things? I wish people would escalate as much as I do to make me feel like I'm not such a crazy person. To be validated? I just want to be validated. I gotcha. So at this point now, I'm just emotionally, physically, and mentally exhausted. So it's not... I'm just to the point where I'm like, you know, complaining about things, it's, it sounds so petty. Mm. Like I have a nice house right now. Yeah. So. Well, when you're made aware of an opportunity and you're not able to seize it in the way that, you know, would like there's a best case scenario available to us. And when we know we can't have that thing, when we know we're not like reaching for the stars or anything, it's frustrating. Yeah. So I get that. Yeah, so, um, but we'll just keep trucking on. Keep doing what we're doing? And keep doing what we're doing. Do you need a drink or anything before we... I'm fine. Let's just, well, it's not going to be like a two hour long episode. Who, who knows? Well, Sometimes that happens. Uh, oh, sorry. We were going to be uh, calling in a guest. Um, I saw they, they had liked one of our posts on instagram and uh looked at their profile and, and this lady had written a book about sobriety and i was like oh that seems like a really good fit for what we're doing um and then after doing a little more research found out that there's there's going to be a lot of questions that i have mm -hmm. as far as the way that sobriety affects um kind of the party lifestyle and, and i don't know we'll we'll get into it yeah hello hi is this Brittany? hi yeah this is Brittany. hi uh this is chris and kim hey nice to meet you guys <laughs> nice to meet you, <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> um so i am uh excited to to talk to you uh but um first why don't why don't we why don't you give our listeners a a, a little history kind of your upbringing and how addiction affected you growing up so I actually grew up with a decent childhood. Uh, my parents were together until I was about 13. But my dad was an alcoholic and still is. I remember like being a kid and watching him drink like a 12-pack of beer like every night. But my mom kind of covered up for it. So like it wasn't as bad as what it should have been. And that like really affected me in a way that I was scared of alcohol. Oh. Like I never wanted, I never like wanted to drink it. I didn't try it until I was like 20. We were like top of the class, gifted, goody two shoes, hated alcohol, hated partying to a point where we were kind of judgmental. Oh. So, um, so once my sister and I, we moved away from the home after we graduated in after we graduated high school, we went to the University of Florida in Gainesville, which is about two hours away from where we grew up. And I, I tried like drinking for the first time and I absolutely fell in love with it because the reason being is that I was so conservative and shy in high school and I was known as being that shy, kind of uptight person that when I went to college and I started drinking, I was able to create this persona that allowed me to be outgoing in the life of the party in the center of attention. And I just wasn't used to that. And I, I just fell in love with it. And at that time, my sister, uh, she wasn't drinking at all. I was, it was almost like my identity. Like the partying was something that was unique to me and my sister on the other hand, 
was struggling with an eating disorder. So that was like her identity. And I think we, we really enjoyed not being one person. We were two separate people with two different things that made us unique. And I think that almost like made our addictions like even like more in the forefront. It oh. kind of compelled us to keep like doing what we we're doing. Oh, that's interesting. So when when you guys were going through your own things, were either of you aware that the other was having a problem? Yeah. At that point, I wasn't really aware that it was a problem because all of my friends were partying. Uh, my sister, I think, knew it was a problem because I was blacking out and hooking up with different people every night. And that's not that wasn't the normal me and my sister, she was in and out of treatment for an eating disorder for the whole four years that we were in college. I remember, um, she joined the cross country team at the university of Florida. And I think at one point they told her that she couldn't go to practice because she was so thin. She wasn't eating. And then when she would eat, she would throw it up. So she was kind of like going back and forth between bulimia and anorexia. So, college was just like a constant battle for both of us but we we ended up like both graduating and then when we graduated that's when I I realized that I was like a full-blown alcoholic so after graduating I moved to New York to start a career in advertising because that's what I studied and I started bartending because I didn't really have an option like my parents at this point, my dad was practically out of my life. My mom owns a cleaning business, so she doesn't really, like, she couldn't really help fund, like, getting off my feet in New York. So I started bartending, you know, and with that comes drinking. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the, the feeling like I had to drink in order to make it through a night. And I still wasn't 100% sure that it was a problem because I would go months at a time without drinking just to prove to myself that I didn't have a problem. Yeah. That's something that that we talk about on here a lot is, um, the, the notion of like the controlled addict where there's something in the back of your mind that when you go on these breaks, the back of your mind, you're like, that's, I don't mind taking a, taking time off. Cause I know I can always go back to it. Yeah, exactly. And knowing that you're going to go back to it makes it easier because you still have that anticipation. Yep. Oh, yeah, man. You know, it's like, oh, it's miserable not drinking tonight, but I know in X amount of days that I will be able to drink again and then I'll get my fix. Yep. And you're introducing that reward system as well. Yeah, exactly. So it's like the anticipation of drinking is almost just as high as the actual drinking. So I remember the first time I knew that I was addicted to alcohol was I think I drank like two weeks in a row straight. And then it was a Monday morning. I woke up and I was so shaky. Like my brain was in a complete fog. I couldn't even function. I couldn't hold a pencil. Like I couldn't do anything. And I was so scared. Like I thought I was sick or coming down with something. So I walked into the hospital because I tried to go into work that night and it just, I couldn't, I couldn't even function. So I went to the hospital across the street. This was on the upper, upper East side. And I told the lady I'm having tremors. I was hallucinating. And the woman was like, do you drink alcohol? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm a bartender. I drink like almost every night. And she said that I was withdrawing and I refused to believe that I was withdrawing. But it finally set in a couple hours later when I was, when I was there, um, for, I was there and they were giving me medication to not have a seizure. I oh. was like, oh, I, I started Googling it. And I'm like, yeah, this is definitely what I'm going through. Man. So, yeah. W- and was it just drinking? Were there any other substances that you had introduced? In no, it was just frame? drinking. Like I, I had a few friends that tried to introduce Coke and weed. And I just didn't like it because drinking like messed me up so much that it was predictable. I knew like how much to drink to get messed up. And it's like, why even try anything else? Yeah. Like drinking did it for me. It allowed me to escape and I was comfortable with it. I wasn't comfortable with like taking pills or doing anything else because I wasn't sure how it was going to 
react with me. But I did black out like practically every time that I drank. And in college, it wasn't that big of a deal because I had friends around me everywhere. And we always would go to a bar. They closed it too. And somehow I always ended up making it home. But then when I moved to New York, I had no friends in New York. So when I would go out, the bars never closed. I would end up drinking until I passed out in a public place. And then the people would call the ambulance. And I woke up in the hospital like at least 15 times. Oh, wow. And like that didn't even stop me. Yeah, that's one thing that's super interesting is that when you grow accustomed to these types of instances you feel like you are, you still have some level of control Yeah. because you're like, well, yeah, this has happened before and it's okay. I'm okay. And so there, yeah, it's a weird thing that our brains start to do to trick us into thinking that you're not in any danger. You're not like any other alcoholic or addict or anything. And in my head, I'm like, I'm only hurting myself. I'm not hurting anyone else. Yeah. So it's like, I can still, like I rationalized it by saying I still have a job. I still make my own money. I still have an apartment. I still have like a boyfriend. And to the outside world, I looked normal. So it was kind of like my own little secret. Like no one had to know that I woke up in the hospital this morning. And then later that night I I went to work as a bartender. Like who cares? And I really thought that like I would get to a point where I would stop drinking, but being 23, 24, 25, I'm not going to stop drinking at that age. Like that's ridiculous. I remember going out on dates with guys and the first thing I would do is order a drink. Obviously I was drinking before I even went on the date, but the first thing I would do was order a drink. I went on this date with this guy that didn't drink. And I thought to myself, I'm never going out with this guy ever again. Like he doesn't drink. Like what does he do with his life? Yeah. Like, how do you not drink? Yeah, it is weird because then it makes you feel that like judgment. Like, yeah, oh, totally. how do they feel about me? I don't, yeah. I don't I, I'm not doing anything wrong. I shouldn't have to force myself to be in a situation like this. Yeah. I, I always dated people who would co-sign on my drinking. That's a good, good word. Co-sign. Like, yeah. me. Like, I dated guys who were slightly less attracted than me, guys who I know would, like, put up with my bullshit. Man, that's super interesting. (laughs) So, and correct me if I'm wrong, but did I read that you you had a, you have a minor in psychology as well? Yeah. (laughs) Now, that's interesting. What made you want to, like, was that just because you were going to school and it went along with some of the classes you were taking? Or did you actually have an interest it in that? It did, but I really have an interest in psychology. Like, I love learning how the human brain works. It's funny because even though I knew how my brain was functioning and I knew why I was making certain decisions, I still kept doing them. Just because of the the disease. It keeps you going even though... You know it's hurting you. You know what it's doing to your body. You know where you're going to end up. I knew I was going to end up in the hospital, but I still did it. Man. Yeah, it's it's really wild. And to like, and I don't know if this is your case, but I know for a lot of addicts, there were people that would um, lean on them, myself included, to help solve problems or to be a, a shoulder to cry on. Like we were dependable but chaotic at the same time. Definitely. And yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say like, did you, did you have people like that that were leaning on you or counting on you for things? Yeah, definitely. I remember during the time that I was in New York, my sister was in Florida and she was, she was, she started drinking and she was in and out of treatment for alcohol at this point. And I remember her doing crazy things. She was living with my mom and, she would drink hand sanitizer and like drink mouthwash and escape from like treatment centers. And she would be on the street for weeks at a time. And I remember thinking to myself, like, well, I'm not as bad as her. So I don't have the problem. And my mom at that time was leaning on me for support and leaning on me for advice on what to do with her addiction. Meanwhile, I'm over here with the same addiction, just at a lesser degree, thinking that, 
it's not problematic simply because my sister's disease was 10 times worse. Yeah. And it's like, I'm over here giving my mom advice and it's, it was so hypocritical looking back on it. And I don't think I mentioned this, but during this time, I also struggled with an eating disorder. So during the times that I wasn't drinking, the times where I would take two months and not go out and party, I would utilize my eating disorder. It was never a time where I just didn't do either before I went to treatment the first time. Well, and and that's super common too, is this idea of, and for, for a lot of us, it's this idea of control is I don't have control over X, Y, Z, but I do have control over what goes into my body. And exactly. And it's funny because at the time I didn't consider myself a controlling person. And I would always hear that word control, control when it comes to an eating disorder. And I really didn't think that's why I was doing what I was doing. So, so at the time, what did it feel like? It just felt like something that I was doing just for excitement, for a rush. Oh, it interesting. Was like the excitement of just eating large amounts of food. It was the anticipation. Like I wasn't anticipating going out and partying anymore or feeling high from being drunk. It was the anticipation of feeling high from eating all this food and then waking up in the morning feeling skinny because I had thrown it all up the night before. Wow. It was like the sneakiness. I love feeling sneaky. Like my roommate didn't know. He would compliment like how good I looked because I was so skinny. Yet he would cook me like 10 pounds of food at night. I felt like, like I was getting away with something. Yeah. And that's super common too. Yeah. That, that, this, that idea of getting away with something. Yeah. It, it does activate, um, what is it? It's a part of your fight or flight. It's that survival instinct mm-hmm. gets activated, which, yeah, I, I didn't realize that until after I had gotten out of treatment was the brain is such a, a tricky bastard. And uh, it really is. It's so crazy. <laughs> well, and on, on top of like the things that you are dealing with, you had also kind of been put in the limelight as well, right? Yeah. So on top of being a bartender, were you getting hired to go to clubs as well? Not at that point. That was that was toward the end of college. Okay. So what what were you I mean, were you hired just as like a like a celebrity to be at these places or what what would you do when you were there? Yeah, we would just be we were hired to pretty much host the the party. Oh, okay. So we went like to a few different locations. We would just go there for the night. We got paid, I think it was like a thousand dollars or whatever each time we went. And, and that was pretty much it. And were you drinking at that point? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Right after we were on TV, my sister and I, um, we were kind of like minor celebrities in the town that we were in because everyone knew who we were. So we were partying like almost every night just because we loved the attention. I remember going out and we would have at least 10 people ask to take a picture with us. It was just fun. I never had that kind of attention before. So it was just cool. Yeah. Well, and growing I mean, up, we were known as like the nerdy, like kind of unpopular people. And when we went to college, it kind of changed. So that's super interesting. Well, and yeah. when you're not having to pay for your addiction, that's another Definitely. thing that can can compound all that stuff because it feels nice. I mean, everybody knows like getting a gift feels nice as it is. So yeah. any any type of um uh I don't know what to call it, but <laughs> No, I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 but so those those micro rewards um, that are like subconscious, it's, it's hard to look at that as a bad thing or to yeah, even it realize good that it's walking a bad thing. into a, a bar and having people buy your drinks is just because they recognize you on TV yeah. and it boosts your, it makes your head and inflates your head. You're like, wow, I'm a somebody. And for so long growing up when I was younger, I felt like a nobody. Like my dad kind of ignored me. Like life wasn't that great. And now all of a sudden I'm being put on this pedestal. Let's go back to that a little bit then. So back to the childhood. So is it just the the three of you then? Yeah, it was just the three of us. 
Okay. And your brother, I forget, was was he younger or older? He's like 14 months older. Okay. And because he was, you know, kind of bullied or uh, not treated as fairly, did it... And also internal conflict. Sure. My brother, yeah, my brother got sober. Um, and what year was that? Like 2000, I think it was like 2012. And he's been sober ever since. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so interesting, though. It's it's weird to know your family history or like family dynamic and to still like to think that you're above it and then fall susceptible to that thing. Totally. Because like growing up, all of my uncles were alcoholics. My grandfather was an alcoholic. I knew all of these things, but still for some reason thought, nah, not me. It's not going to happen to me. Exactly. And that's really what I thought like all through high school. And like, there's no way I'm ever going to be that. I don't want to be like what my dad's doing. And it was so terrible. He smoked cigars. I could tell he was super unhealthy. And like, there's no way that I'm going to turn out like being a drinker like this. It's not the lifestyle that I want to live. And and then I remember the first time I drank in college, I just loved the feeling of partying. And then once I started, it's like I couldn't stop. Yeah. And that's another a difficult thing is when, when you don't have necessarily have things that you're repressing, it can be hard because, you know, people don't say, oh, well, she's sad all the time or she's this or that. Like she just likes to have a good time. It's so easy to look over the amount of drinking or drugging that happens. Yeah, definitely. When people are and when everyone else around you is doing the same thing, granted they don't have that propensity to become an alcoholic. You still think that you're on their level. Yeah. So, and granted, I was drinking 10 times more than everybody else and blocking out by the end of the night. You still think that you're equivalent to everybody else. And I think it's hard to like with college is because people see so much on TV and on TV shows and they hear it like kids just drink through college. That's just what you do. Definitely. You party you, all the you time. Normalize it. Yep. It's completely like, normalized. So it was funny almost when I would yeah. black out and end up hooking up with somebody. I laughed about it. I remember bragging to people how funny it was. Yep, and then your friends tell you the next day all the things you did, and you guys all laugh about it. Like, oh, you don't remember yeah. when you did that, and it's funny, and you talk talk about it and laugh about it, and like it's just a sad thing that we do in today's society. Yeah, yeah, and I hate that. Yeah, I always like to compare it to like other drugs, like methamphetamines. When you see someone like you know acting out or paranoid because of that, you don't like laugh about it the next no day. No one jokes about no, it. It's no. not acceptable. But yeah. it. It's so crazy how that is with alcohol. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it even I I would say within like the last five years, uh, beer has been like intertwined with so many activities like nothing can be just a normal get together or function. Like everything has to from movie theaters to painting, all of these things now have drinking interwoven into it rather than yeah, it just being a normal activity like ever since i started college i was so used to alcohol being around every scenario that we were in it was going to the park doing this doing that so for for that amount of time from college to where i am now well about five years ago i was so used to having alcohol there so how was i gonna function normally without it yeah. Like I looked forward to alcohol being there and that's like my driving force for being so social when I was back then. So oh, I got you. Without that without that like I couldn't picture myself being as outgoing and being as social as I was back then. That's that's a you lot take of alcohol out of the equation, your safety net, your your yeah. crutch like 
Yeah. How was I supposed to be that same person? I am the same way. I'm very introverted and shy, but like if I knew we were going somewhere and there was going to be alcohol there, I was like, great, this is going to be awesome. I can exactly. uh, even maybe I'll even drink a little bit before we leave the house because then I know I that I'll be loosened that. up before I get there, yeah. drink while I'm there, and then I can interact with all these people. And normally I'd be like, I don't really know what to talk about with these people. So, but when you're drunk, you can talk you about can talk whatever. About yeah. And I was best friends with everybody. Yep. Yep. I, I really truly didn't accept my interest introverted side yep like I hated my sober self I thought I was boring and I just kept picturing that girl in high school that was boring that was quiet that was timid that had a lot of anxiety and being sober I thought that it just it brought back all those emotions from high school yeah yep which I hated and it's almost like that alcohol gave you this confidence like when you're in high school and you're shy, introverted, you're not interacting, you don't feel confident, people aren't paying as much attention to you. But when you're intoxicated and you're really social and you get out of that bubble, it's like you get this attention, then you inflate your confidence and you want yeah. that all the time. Yep. Yeah. Well, and another it was like shitty... the only time that guys really talked to me too is when I was oh. promiscuous and, you know, that's interesting. And I love that attention. Yeah. It's funny because I'm like the opposite now. <laughs> like, I, when a guy talks to me, I'm like, leave me alone. Go away. <laughs> Do you show like, them your, <laughs> your rosary beads? Yeah. I'm on a mission from the church. Please back away. <laughs> I can't even like picture myself like enjoying that type of attention. It's just not who I am to the core. Well, another thing, like as we're getting, we're growing into adults, like we get out of that teenage stage and we get out of high school. There's Mm. less of the outward bullying and more of the behind closed doors and the behind your back type of shit. And so you have that inner monologue of like, what are they saying about me right now? There's so many times at parties or at, you know, uh, get togethers where somebody would get upset just at the thought that somebody is perceiving them a certain way. Yeah. And so... As a, as adults, we have to deal with the whole other mind fuck of yeah, it's social an anxiety conflict. Yeah, and I'm already hard on myself as it is to think that someone else doesn't approve of me is devastating. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. We're hard enough on ourselves as it is. Like, it's yeah, it's a tough freaking world out there. So now you, um, sorry, I know I'm kind of all over the place, but. <laughs> going back to uh um so in and out of the hospital at what point did you like did you ever actually go to treatment no well during this well I did later on but I remember when was it that I it was about three years of going back and forth partying taking a break bartending trying to make quick money doing this living there I was just like a shit show for about three years and then I remember, um, I, I think it was 2015, I told myself, okay, I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to get sober. I'm going to do this on my own. So I stopped drinking and I posted on social media that I was sober. I admitted that I was an alcoholic. And I really thought that I had a good grasp of where my future was going to go. And I remember one day, it was three months into sobriety, And I just walk into a liquor store and like started drinking. And I remember my roommate, um, he came home one day and I was on a four day bender at this point. And he found me on the floor with blood everywhere. He thought that someone had broken in and like murdered me. So he called the ambulance, ambulance shuffled me to the, to the hospital for the 50th time. And I remember talking to my sister on the phone and she said that at this point she was in Back, she was back in Florida and she told me that I could come to treatment because she knew somebody that worked at the treatment center that could scholarship me. And I said, yeah, like hell yeah, I'll go. So I was on a plane the following day. Can I ask real quick? Sorry. What? So what, where did the blood come from? Um, I, oh yeah, I kind of forgot. (laughs) (laughs) Someone broke in and actually shot me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I fell and hit my head on a table. I have so many bruises and like cuts and scars on my body from falling. That's just what I did when I was drunk. Wow. 
Um, but yeah, so I, I got on a plane. I remember the first time I went to the airport to get on a plane, I, I sat at the bar and ordered too many drinks and they wouldn't let me on the plane. So then my roommate came and picked me up from the little like airport hospital. And he, the following day, he had like walk me through security to get me on the plane to ensure that I wouldn't drink. So I'm like, I'm not going to treatment sober. I had to have like my last, my last drink. So, um, so I finally made it to treatment and I loved it. I was so excited to be there. I felt was so grateful for the opportunity to even be there because I didn't have insurance. Oh. And then 10 days into it, I guess there weren't enough beds. And there were like, there was like a waiting list of people trying to get into that treatment center. So they discharged me. Oh. They said, you're on the right path. You're doing everything right. And they stepped me down to the sober living intensive outpatient i was like well okay i wanted to stay longer but that's fine (laughs) that's such that sucks so much because that happens all the time and i'm not trying to shit on treatment centers but there are some (laughs) i try not to shit on the treatment center because they really gave me an opportunity in the first place but at the same time i i felt like i wasn't a paying customer so i just felt like i wasn't as important as someone who had a fat insurance policy. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's just how I felt. Yeah. That I, I got lucky and my insurance covered my whole 28 days. Um, and the way that the counselors would talk to me versus somebody who only got to be there for 10 days was so clearly different. And mm-hmm. like you, you can't t- talk to me like I should be there for 60 days and then the guy who is only going to be there for 10 days, like give him the bare minimum and then send him out on the street. Like, yeah, it made me, it, it gave me a lot of anger. Yeah. Well, resentment would be. Yeah. Huge. Like I wanted to be there so bad. I wanted and, to keep working and learning about the steps and everything. Like I wanted that. And I loved the sense of structure the routine, the waking up at six in the morning. Cause I wasn't used to that. I was used to waking up at noon, going, no one telling me what to do, going to drink, bartending, going out with guys. Like I love the fact that someone was telling me what to do and all I had to do was follow the rules Yeah, and I would get a pat on the back. And statistically speaking, people who want to be in treatment facilities and want the help are going to favor better than people that are there not wanting to get the help. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So th- when you did you transition down to the sober living then with the intensive? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I did the IOP for I think it was like a couple months after, and then you know I went to meetings and did everything right, and I told myself I'm going to be a one and done. I was on this pink cloud. I thought like life was so great. I picked up like my three month chip, and then you know I was. I was like riding the wave and then seven months later, you know, life got hard. It wasn't even like that hard. It's just, I I was like, I got bored. You forget like how bad your addiction like actually was. And I went to a liquor store, got a little bottle, had like three airplane bottles, called in the night, woke up in the morning, went to work. Everything was fine. In that instance, reinforced in my mind that I could have a couple of drinks and be okay. Mm. So for the following six months, I, I would drink a little bit and then not drink for a while. And I kind of convinced myself that it was okay. It was secretive. No one knew that I was doing it. And I was still kind of going to meetings once in a while, pretending like I was still doing the whole recovery thing. Sure. But I was, and at this point I had started dating somebody who was in recovery and he knew I was slipping up here and there, but he didn't know the extent of it. Every time he would leave town or every time he like was working late, I would try to like go behind his back and drink. And you get better at it when, when you're in those scenarios too. Um, like the, that's an under, I hate to say underappreciated, but and um, people underestimate the thought process and follow through that an addict will go through 
to make sure that the the odor isn't there to make sure yeah that he always smelled it on me that's what pissed me off <laughs> i was like i would get so mad he was so good at it that's why i had to wait until he was out of town but during that time it was like i was so unhappy with like our life in general like i loved him and everything but we were struggling i was making like $14 an hour. He wasn't doing that well. Our life was just hard. Mm. We had a bunch of roommates and my sister was living with us. Like shit was just hard. And I was just angry at the whole situation. And drinking was my only little way, my only like secretive little personal way to escape from everything. Yeah. It wasn't until now, like three years later, after going to treatment again, that I realized the only way to stay sober was to build a life good enough where I didn't want to drink and ruin everything that I worked so hard for. Oh, interesting. Like at that point I didn't have anything to lose. I didn't care. Like, what was I going to do? Like lose my, my job at Texas day Brazil, like as a <laughs> server, like, okay. <laughs> Fire me. I was like a hostess at Scarlet's like, Life wasn't that great. Like, I, I really didn't care. I was, like, scared to lose my boyfriend. But at the same time, I knew he would always be by my side because he, he's he gone through addiction. So he understood me. He wasn't just going to leave me. Yep. Well, I mean, so it, it's interesting that you say that you, you had nothing to lose. Um, something that I, I think about is what uh, chain of events would happen that would make me go back to drinking. And I think the only thing that I can come up with, and it's not anything like enlightening, but just, it's just me making it okay. You making what? Like me coming up with the excuse for why it's okay to drink is just simply me saying, ah, it's fine. Like it's really that simple. It doesn't have to be, because I've met people who have had the worst things happen to them and they were able to remain sober after. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like it's it's far simpler than it needs to be when it comes to how easy relapse can happen. Yeah, totally. People always ask me that. They're like, what keeps you sober? And I'm like, what didn't keep me sober in the past was a case of the fuck it's where I just didn't give a shit. I had no real passion, nothing going for me. It was like, fuck it. Okay, I'm just going to, like, why not? Yeah. But when you erase that why not, it's like, why would I drink? Yeah. Like, I don't want to lose everything that I that I have right now. And I feel like sometimes, like, people do get into this trap of people in South Florida of entering recovery, going to meetings every night, working their, like, restaurant job at at the pizza place. And it's like, you just keep doing the same thing every day for two years straight. And after three years of being in recovery, you still like, don't really have a life. Like you really have nothing going for you. Wow. So it's like, I didn't want to be like that person in recovery. Like I want to do something like with my life. And of course it's going to be a daily struggle every day when you're doing the same grinds. And you're not really getting anywhere. Like, yeah, you have three years sober, but you're still not really anywhere. Like, you can't just walk around and say you have 10 years sober without doing anything with your life. I wanted to be someone who did something with my life on top of staying sober. I didn't want just staying sober to be my life. Does that make any sense? Yeah. Well, I like, say... I still wanted to be normal. I, I want to, like... I still wanted to do things that normal people do, like own businesses and have families and do all these great things while being sober. I didn't want this, this sober, the sobriety to be, to be my achievement. Yeah. Well, and I say it all the time is that sobriety doesn't make everything better. It just enables you to be able to handle exactly. things with a, with a clear mind. That's all that. Yeah. It's a tool. Is. Yes. It's exactly. not the end game. Yes. Ah, oh, worded so perfectly. <laughs> I'm not usually like this. <laughs> <laughs> when you were getting sober, was is, is, so you said your brother is sober. Was he someone you ever leaned on when you were struggling? Like, did he ever reach out to you and say, hey, this helped me? Like, what was your yeah, relationship when you were? Convers- yeah, we would have conversations here and there, but we weren't 
too incredibly close because my brother, when he got sober, he he did it all on his own. He oh. he did everything the right way, got the sponsor and started sponsoring people. And he really didn't cross any of his personal brown boundaries. Like with his mom, with our mom, with my sister, with me, he like, he almost lived in this bubble, which enabled him to stay sober because he went to treatment and he's been sober ever since. Oh, wow. Like he's literally been in this bubble, but I think it's a good bubble because he's in law school. He's doing things, you know, but we weren't super close. Like he never really overstepped like any boundaries, like with my sobriety. Of course, if I called him, he would give me advice or whatever, but I didn't really go there. Because yeah. like his sobriety was unique to him. That was his experience. Like we didn't really want to blur those lines. Yeah. 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 What about you with know? your sister? My sister, it's been a hot mess with her and I. It's <laughs> it was like it's just a constant competition back and forth. What are you you're doing this? You're you're throwing up your food. I saw you drinking. Like especially oh. when we were living in South Florida together. It was just a battle. A constant battle. Yeah. Well, we, it was a mess. <laughs> we, we, we feel that obligation to be like the don't cast stones in a glass house. That mm-hmm. whole thing. It's like when you know somebody, especially as, as much as a, a twin, like you, you're going to know the second that they cast any judgment, you know, 10 things that you could judge them for. And so it's like, how can you say that when we both know that you do X, Y, Z? Exactly. Like I would go through months with sobriety and she would be struggling or I would, she would be sober for a while, but yet um, using her eating disorder, it would constantly like cast judgment. And then at the same time, I remember thinking, oh, she's on a bender. She's going to do what she wants to do. And I've been in that position and I don't want to be the person that's gonna lock lock her up in her room and say you can't like walk to the store like at the same time like i have a life Mm. so it's like you don't know you don't really want to cross that line and you know what it's like in that situation how painful it is and how bad you want something and what you're gonna do to get it so it's like what's the point of me even trying to stop this yeah well and i know she's gonna get it she knows i'm gonna sneak out the window and go to the store anyway yeah, that's they say that in treatment all the time is that the only, like no, nothing can prevent you from relapsing. Like relapse nothing. if it's going to happen it'll happen. Yeah, and nothing would stop anybody. Yeah. Everyone's like why didn't you just do this or throw her out or lock her up in a room or whatever. Yeah. Um because I've been there and I knew that wouldn't have stopped me. Sorry, our one of our dogs was <laughs> clawing at the door. No, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is awesome, man! I I'm I, I I hope I haven't asked anything that's out of place or that's. I don't know. If you've read my book, you would know that there's nothing that I don't talk about. <laughs> yeah, I I wish I would have. I I should have freaking read it before we did this. Can't oh no! I didn't do I don't, that. I'm no, definitely no. gonna read it now, though. No, you really don't have to. <laughs> no. It's I, not for everybody. I like the way that you're because for me, like I I have I take up issue with the twelve step program, which is not the like most popular thought process, but mm-hmm. it just it's outdated in certain regards and Oh definitely. There's a lot of hypocrisy and it can make people feel they say that you need to get shed this shame, but then mm-hmm. that 12 step program, there's at, at least, and we're in the Midwest. So it's, it's a, a different type of judgment that this like passive aggressive judgment. And so it casts this whole other thing of shame, which can send you spiraling back down and uh, going into relapse. Whereas this type of conversation like this is as soon as I got out of treatment, we started doing this podcast and it forces me at least once a week to really reflect on um, my sobriety and learning from other people's sobriety. 
Yeah. And I think that real world experience versus the almost kind of biblical structure that the 12 step program has um, is 10 times more valuable than, than going that route. Yeah. That's how I feel. When I first like started working the steps, I felt like I was starting at the bottom of the totem pole. I remember going to meetings and just idolizing people who had like one year clean, two years, three years, 10 years. And I'm like, Oh my God, like one day I want to be one of those people. They were speaking and they were preaching and they like could quote the big book Mm. without even like having the book in front of them. And I thought that was so cool. And then like when I got to, what I got to realize is that I was like idolizing something that, that like, I, like I realized that's not like, I don't know if that's like what I want to be. Like, I felt like, I felt like, why do I feel at the bottom of the barrel just because I have two days clean? And then these people are like, treated like celebrities because they have three years clean like the reality is is that i'm clean today and that person's clean today so we're equal yes and like like when i would relapse i would have like seven six seven months and then i relapse and i'm like well shit i ruined all that time i had to start back at square one feeling that like that small little person so i'm gonna relapse hard i'm not gonna go just drink i'm gonna drink for 10 days straight because i ruined all this time that i had yeah. Because I felt like I had to go back to square one feeling like a nobody with the I'm a newcomer, I'm a I'm one day clean, like oh like come here, give me a hug. Like I felt like a baby. Yeah. But yeah. like the reality is is like yeah, you have ten years clean, but like you still aren't you're still not doing anything with your life. Yes. That's like, what I was gonna say was like It was like hypocritical almost. The the there it's so common for addicts to replace they're just replacing an addiction like having this persona of the you know highly successful sober person but it's only it only goes as far as these groups are yeah it's like you're the celebrity of the meeting but what are you doing outside of here yes (laughs) like yeah and it bothered me like the way that i felt when i did relapse and i would go back in and i had to tell everybody that I had relapsed. I was so shameful of it. Mm-hmm. Again, like feeling shame. And you're not supposed to feel shame when you're working this this great program like that. Like, why did I feel like this? Yeah. I I stopped I stopped paying attention to the to the days that I'm sober because yeah same. I, I, I don't want like obviously we're doing a, a podcast about it so it it does take up <laughs> some mental real estate but it's in a different way that like this is applicable outside of this room, like outside of this, this podcast, like these are things and, and conversations that I, I can have, uh, the frame of mind that it takes to be sober. I've been able to apply to other things. So sobriety should mean, okay, I'm not just sober. I'm more present. I am more coherent i'm able to connect with people better and which is ironic because when i was drunk i thought that like me being drunk and the other person being drunk that i for some reason was connecting better Mm -hmm. but i was forgetting shit constantly so it's like you you may have connected it's just like perceived it's just perceived like passion in a in a conversation yes it's like just all fake it's an artificial connection yeah well, it's fleeting because our, our memory is so shit from having yeah, it distorted totally. <laughs> so often. <laughs> yeah. it's That was another weird thing, too, was like when I had started to get sober, I didn't realize the other stuff that I was doing randomly, even though I, I like primarily was an alcoholic, like there were there was other random things that I would do, like sniffing glue or like do a line of Adderall like just weird little things that I knew that I wasn't that guy but there was clearly something about me that would give myself a pass to do this shit every now and then yeah that's how I was yeah and there's like things that normal people wouldn't do I thought that it was normal for me (laughs) yeah and it's like you your your mind is like I know this isn't who I am. You just did a 
a goofy thing. That's that was weird that we did that, but glad we're not yeah, that you, type like, of person. Yeah, you disassociate from the action. Yeah. You're like that wasn't me. That's just an action that I'm doing just to pass time or, or escape from a moment. Yeah. But you know that's not you. Yeah. And you kind of have to do that. Well, I know that I have to do that just to just to not feel the shame that I should feel for all the things that I have done. Mm. Yeah. You do uh, that. That is a weird thing. Um, when, when they say, um, uh, disease of choice, you chose to use in the beginning, but you had no choice over how it was going to completely take over you. Yeah. And, and when people like hear disease and they, you know, they, they get confused because you're the vehicle that was carrying that disease. So mm-hmm. as far as they're concerned, you were doing this stuff, which it's partially true, but that wasn't like my true self. That wasn't yeah. the best version of me that I could be. And so you do have to not necessarily make an excuse, but give yourself the grace to like accept what has happened in the past and, and move forward. Yeah. I tell myself that all the time when, when the whole thing about like choice comes up, it, it really bothers me because I, I wrote this in my book. Like I didn't choose to have the brain that tells me like not to stop something, even though I'm going to end up in the hospital in some strange bed. Like I didn't choose that brain. Yeah. Like I, I don't want my brain to keep, to, to keep drinking despite horrific consequences. Yeah. Yeah, and people don't yeah, it's so weird because there's so many other like if somebody experiences a head injury, nobody judges them for having any type of mental health issue after the fact. Yeah. Like our anatomy is in such a way that once we introduce that substance, it activates a part of our brain that goes, "Okay, we need to find a way to introduce this same dopamine level over and over and over again." Not everybody's yeah, built that way. Yeah, and then when way. you don't have that, you feel like at, at such a low that normal people don't understand. Yep. Like you wake up in the morning completely sober and you don't even know how you're going to function for that day. Yeah. Normal people just wake up in the morning, take a shower, go to work, and they don't even think about it. But like the feeling of needing something extra just to be normal, like is shitty. I don't want to feel like that. Yeah. I don't want to feel like I have to have a drink in order to have a conversation with somebody without sweating my ass off because I'm nervous. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, we, it's miserable. I, yeah. Man, I relate on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> what what motivated you to, to write a book? I just had such a unique experience when I was living in New York because I was completely on my own. I had like, I started out with like, in my bank account and I ended up like having everything that I thought that I wanted. I had money. I had a nice apartment. I had everything and I still wasn't happy. And with that whole experience, I always thought like this would make a great book. I need to write a book. It should like feature my addiction and it would just be the perfect, like all the ingredients would be perfect for a great book. And when quarantine hit, I, I thought that if I'm actually going to write this damn book, it's going to be now because I'm sitting at home doing nothing for three months. So I just started writing and within like three weeks I was finished. Oh, wow. It just, yeah, it went by so fast and I hired an editor and a formatter and put everything together. I got a book designer and I just published it. (laughs) Holy smokes. You did all of that on your own? Yeah. Wow. I mean, granted, I was sitting at home like doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) Like I was putting in like eight hours a day. It was a lot of work, but it was worth it. Well, I mean, there's a lot of people who only go through step one. They just go through the the writing step and then kind of it it sits for two years and, and never goes anywhere. So the and fact that's that you I had felt that like follow I was doing through. because I was starting to write like three, four years ago and I just never really like committed to it. And it bothered me. I'm like, this is just another situation where 
I'm, I, I start something, I didn't finish it. And I was like mad at myself. And I thought my story was like powerful enough to, to have like, to be important to some people. Yeah. Because I thought like growing up, I, I had this, this like idea in my head that if I just moved to New York, start making money, like find a guy, live in this nice apartment, go to work every day that like my life would be good. I have money. Everything's good. Like what could I possibly have to worry about? And then like once I got those things, I still was miserable. Like I thought that if I just was able to walk into a store, buy whatever I want, be able to pay my rent, not have to worry about that, that life would be good. And then when I achieved all those things, life was almost worse. And I kind of wanted that message to be out there that like, don't like stop like chasing things that you think are going to make you happy and try to just be happy for in that moment, regardless of like what you have or where you're at or who you're with, you know? Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So where can people, where can people find this, this book? It's on Amazon. It's called girl wasted girl wasted. Girl, comma, wasted. Girl, comma, wasted. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll uh, still find it without the comma, though. Okay. <laughs> uh, and your social media, where where would you it, like people to, to follow? Uh, Sober Barbie. Sober Barbie. Now, I was curious as to what made you <laughs> come up with that name. It just happened. I don't know. <laughs> I wanted some, I wanted, my name was Bacon Lettuce Taltos and I wanted something <laughs> like I was writing cause my initials is BLT. Oh, okay. And I wanted something that people would know that I'm sober cause I knew I wanted to start making posts about sobriety and really like allowing people into my journey. So Barbie just kind of, it just works. It's easy. It's. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's awesome. And I think a lot of times people like to read people's personal, like I, I'm a mental health nurse. And so throughout my journey of learning about mental health, I read a lot, a lot of memoirs because it's a real life story. It's not, you know, these books, it's not like the big book and all that. This is someone's real journey and how Mm -hmm. it affected them. And I think that people like to read that because it's a, yeah, it's real. Yeah. I also kind of like the name Barbie because it represents like plastic, fake, like perfect oh. everything, perfect hair, perfect body. But then when you read my my captions, it's like my picture is perfect, but like my story is so imperfect that like you can't judge a book by its cover. And I don't know if you've read my blog, but my blog has that same theme. It's like it's called Behind the Smile because oh. I have posted all these beautiful pictures and like pictures at like nice restaurants, nice places, like perfect hair and everything. But then the blog post is about what's actually going on behind that smile. And it's usually blacking out. It's usually like really terrible things happening. So uh, I really wanted to send a message to like people that is like saying not to judge the book by its cover. Mm -hmm. Don't look at somebody and say, Oh, their life is perfect. She's Barbie. She's beautiful. Like she has everything. If I just had all those things that she had, I would be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, that's the day and age we live in now is social media. We can post all these beautiful things about our life and all these great things, but behind the scenes, like with Chris's addiction and when he was, you know, deep in it, I was still posting all these beautiful things about how amazing our life was. And that what people didn't know is that he, my husband was drunk every night and you know, I was, I resented him and I hated him. Yeah. 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 But yeah, my social media was like smiles, look at our family, look at their this yeah. and that. But at like, the, I'm at I'm at Tao, I'm at this club and everything's yeah. great. Like well, I shop here and Yeah. Every and day then, like, there's I'm sure some... some people looked at that and felt like not good enough and felt like their life wasn't where they wanted it to be. But the reality is their life was probably a hell of a lot better than mine. Yeah. Yeah. It's just fake. Yeah. Yeah, that whole perspective and every day there's some new trending thing or some new pose or challenge or like there's always something to distract people from 
what could actually be making them happy. Yeah. And putting mm-hmm. this extra pressure and added stress on things. That's it's interesting. I hadn't thought about that in a while, but yeah. Yeah. Well, Brittany, thank you so freaking much for, for coming on and, and sharing your story. Um, thank you so much for having me. You yeah, guys are great. <laughs> thank you. I love talking to fellow addicts. Yeah, me too. I feel like I relate. <laughs> they really understand me. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's so much. And the the fact that you, you have an interest in psychology and like the, the mental health side of things, that's something that's super important to us too. There, there were very few people that I met that hadn't experienced some type of trauma or that had some type of mental health issue going along with their thing that they mm-hmm. they did not draw the, the dots. They didn't make the connection that these things actually have something to do with one another. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's, that's crazy. Super important. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you again. And uh, we appreciate you. And you stay safe. Thank you so much. Bye, you guys. <laughs> right, bye. 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 That was awesome. Yeah. Wow. That was really cool. I felt bad that I for, I completely blanked. I knew the name of the book and I kept blanking on it. There was that little awkward spacer. Yeah. You can yeah. find it on Amazon. And that's where I should have said the name of the book. Yeah. But I totally brain farted I'm, I'm sorry. i think well and she was also getting a little flustered too it's like because you think that fast and all that it's okay. I, I am kind yeah. of all over the place it's you true. really are so <laughs> no i thought that was really good yeah yeah definitely th- gonna read the book i'm gonna read that yeah yeah for sure i'll put my twilight book aside for now and i'm gonna read this book instead girl comma wasted girl comma wasted <laughs> and that was awesome i don't know if you caught that part that she had gone through all of the steps to make it happen too yeah, that's crazy. That is also good for her. We apologize. Yeah. Kim had to get up a couple times. Barley's freaking out. Yeah, I don't know why my dog is freaking out. He is not in a good place right now. <laughs> He's fine now. He's laying down, but he like Landon even said he was scratching and crying at his door. I don't know oh, what's no. going on. So he's happy now. Poor anxiety ridden. Yeah, furry pig. Good thing he has no access to alcohol because he'd probably have a problem i think oh that could be could be but he's better now pig dog <laughs> um yeah that was good that's awesome yeah anything else you want to add no okay that was a she just talked so much and it's like i had she, so many things i wanted to say but she like was so fascinating and interesting that she just kept going and i'm like okay let's just i'm just gonna listen to her i'm just i love conversations like that obviously because it means we don't have to do any heavy lifting yeah when somebody like is able to lay out the timeline as well as she did and yeah 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 and i'll also like just hearing like her story like when you perceive these people must have so much confidence or all that inside mm-hmm. them when really like because I always envied people like that to find out that she had very like so many similarities to me too where like yeah you'd like constantly like okay if we're gonna hang out with our friends I'm gonna drink a little bit before we go and I know we're gonna have alcohol there so if I it'll be an hour until I finally feel comfortable mm. which yeah yeah I'm glad like now in my mind I'm just like I just don't care like people don't want to talk or if i don't feel like talking i just want to be present and i feel anxious in that moment me you know and people have feel like awkward around me because i'm not as outgoing then those are people i really need in my life so yeah well i love you i love you sorry i'm out of breath from picking up pig dog i know that's totally fine all right thanks for listening everybody um yeah check out her instagram check out her book Sober Barbie. Sober Barbie's Girl Wasted. Yeah. All the things. Yeah. And then I guess until we record next time. Yeah. And are we going to say it together again? Sure. And And with with that, that, we we will pass. pass. Hey, everybody. It's Chris. And Kim. And we're excited to tell you guys that if you go to modifytattoo.com, You can now get 15% off anything in their merch store uh, by using the promo code DuckDuckGrayDuke. Hats, shirts, beanies, glasses. Jewelry? Even jewelry. 
you can get 15% off if you use that promo code DuckDuckGrayDuke. The promo code does not take off for tattoos and piercings, but please go support these guys. They're amazing artists. They do great, great work. Mm-hmm. I'm already figuring out what my next tattoo is going to be. I'm trying to finish up both my arms. I'm excited. Keith is going to give me a sick neck tattoo, and I can't wait. Head to modifytattoo.com and book your session now for your tattoo or piercing. Located in Becker, Minnesota, right off of Bank Street, right behind the bank. Enjoy the show. 